Uh, Today I'm excited because we get to start a new series called Christ is Enough. And we're going to be looking through the book of Colossians together. And that, that excites me because there is a message that Paul is trying to tell the church at Colossae that we have to be mindful of. How many of you recognize in an industrialized world we run the risk of constantly living in a world where it is gospel plus? And you can put in the plus whatever you wish. Gospel plus moralism. Gospel plus legalism. Gospel plus the American dream. Gospel plus we need to live in this neighborhood so our kids can go to this middle school. Amen? You know what I'm saying? And what Paul is trying to say here is that Colossae, they were running the risk of having a subtle but sophisticated heresy that was rising up around them. And amongst them. And so this letter is rather precautionary. It's raising awareness. It's preventative. But they were running the risk of, with a, a, congre- a congregation of both Jewish and Gentile, they're running the risk of the Jews going gospel plus the law. With Gentiles going gospel plus the worship of all these other gods. And there's, I'll explain the heresy as we go through it, but it reminded me of this uh, practice that happens in Passover every year. Annually, Jewish brothers and sisters get together and they celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this all-important meal is, happens around what we call the Seder plate. And there's a Haggadah, which is the telling. It's a book of order for the entire uh, meal. And through the series of intentional steps, there's a portion in the dinner that, um, that reminds us that what God did was sufficient. What God did was enough. There's, there's a word that they use. It's a Hebrew word. Uh, you can say it with me. The word is dihenu. Can you say that? Dihenu. Okay. The reason I want to ask you to say that is because during the dinner, we would actually look at this word and we would go through it. So like the leader of the dinner, like typically the father, would say, um, as he's reminding how, as how the, the Lord had led them out of the Exodus, he might say, if God had only sent the water and turned it to blood, the people would then say, Dihenu. And so, uh, let's practice it. Here it is. If God had only sent the plagues... Dahenu. If God had only parted the Red Sea, Dahenu. It's an, it's an intentional practice that reminds them that whatever God did was enough. And what they're saying is if Christ did nothing else, it would have been enough. So when they get into the wilderness and he sends manna, they say, Dahenu. As if it would have been enough. This is a great practice for us as a people to get into. It individually tells us and reminds us that we do not ever outgrow the cross. And if we would simply embrace the fact that what Christ did on the cross, not only did it not abolish the law, but fulfilled the law, as Jesus said, then we might find ourselves walking worthy of the gospel finding our identity rooted in said gospel, and understanding the investment we are to make in others. Amen? So, uh, this practice is deliberate. We sang today about sufficiency, but how often do we live that way? We sang about how Christ is more than enough, but how often are we living 
like that. See, Paul writes to Colossae, a healthy New Testament church, one that we today can identify with, about the importance of not adding to the gospel, nor of reverting to a thinking that diminished the person, the deity, and the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross. This church has a subtle yet sophisticated heresy that is confronting it. And that heresy starts where it says the, the flesh is evil, but the spirit, which is God, is good. So there's no way that Jesus could have been human because there's no way that the spirit, which is good, God, would inhabit flesh, which is evil. And he is, he's telling them to, that what Christ did was sufficient on the cross. And don't, have it, don't go back. Don't go or listen, no matter how well intended or how well spoken the person who's teaching you that is. That's an, that's an additional gospel. And that will wreak havoc on what God wants to do here. We have sufficiency in Jesus. Today we're going to look at just two verses in Scripture. And we often overlook these first two verses Because if we're not careful, we'll breeze right through the greeting in anything. Because we want to get to the meat of what is to be said. But Paul writes in a very intentional way here, and it's really smart. So we can't just overlook the greeting, because in the greeting encompasses multiple things that we're going to look at through this book. Through the book of Colossians, over our time together, we're going to find a couple things. We're going to look at the hope we have in Christ alone. We're going to look at how to persevere through prayer. We're going to look at the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus. We're going to look at how we persevere through suffering based on his description. We're going to look at how to handle lies. We're going to look at how to overcome temptation. We're going to look at how to walk in true freedom. And we're also going to look at how to handle conflict in our homes that we might see a greater measure of peace in our God-given relationships. So I want to look uh, at the first two verses and read them for you now. Today, our title of our message is Christ is Enough. It is the title for the entire series because in the first two verses you find the main topic and theme. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother. To the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Our first point today, identity. Paul is being very intentional as he begins his letter by he's identifying his identity as in Christ. Paul says an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Why didn't Paul define himself in the traditional way that individuals would have introduced themselves of this day? Why didn't he say Paul, son of a successful Pharisee? Why does he not say Paul understudy and disciple of Gamaliel, the great Gamaliel? Why does he not say Paul from Tarsus? And why does he not address himself the way he does in other places in Scripture? Like in Philippians, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Philemon, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am a Jew, Acts 22, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of the great Gamaliel, according to the law of our ancestors. I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. Paul's writing this intentionally, separating himself in this book from other books, because he's writing to the Colossian church. And he wants them to understand that his authority in writing to them does not get derived from his education, from his lineage, or from his previous works. He's saying, remember, God called me when I was actually opposing him. 
God called me when I was his enemy, killing Christians, radically transformed my life and changed everything about me. My life is not my own anymore, and as a result, it's actually better than it was ever before. He derives his personal identity from whom Jesus has called him to be. That's very important. Not simply what he does for a living. How often do we do this in America? Hey, I'm Justin, what do you do? Paul was a tent maker. He does not say, I'm Paul the tent maker. He does not even say, I am Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, who was the Hebrew to the Hebrews and achieved more in status than anyone else. I was more famous than any other Hebrew. He doesn't say that. And I think that we need to recognize that he draws his identity from Christ and that's as important for him as it is for us today. Because we have a tendency, if we're not careful, to categorize others based on what they do we love to fit people into certain categories so that we can understand how to approach them we do this by their intellectual level their aptitude Uh, we do this by their personal worth even by their physical occupation and i would challenge anyone who thinks like this is discrediting what god has done in them in their god-given design and deliberate gifting now in god-given design I believe that it can help you to do really well. Like, for instance, if you're someone who's the uh, eternal optimist and the eternal extrovert, you're probably going to be really great on camera, behind a microphone, maybe even greeting others, throwing parties. Maybe you should be a party planner. You could probably do really great at that if that's who you are. But you are so much more than what you do. I cannot stress that enough. How many of you say there's more to me than what I do? There is simply more to us. Don't settle for such a shallow description of yourself. We also cannot simply define ourselves by our past successes or failures when God was not leading us and we were leading ourselves. We are disciples of the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. We are no longer to find our identity and our accomplishments and our failures experienced when we were running, when we were running our lives and we were the gods of our own existence. That's what Saul of Tarsus was before Acts 9. And we, we just walked through how powerful his transition was, how powerful his ministry became after the fact in our last series. We would be grievously wrong to define ourselves by either accomplishments or failures. We would be, even if it be subtle, discrediting the work of God in our lives, our allegiance to Him, or dangerously, listen church, both. And that is something that I want to remind us is too important to miss because it leads to our second point. You were saved and set apart for an individual purpose and your identity is to be found in Christ because wherever you go, you carry the presence of God with you and you make an investment. Our second point. You make an investment. By Christ and Paul... He says to Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, faithful brothers and sisters. Paul is saying, I'm writing with Timothy, but I'm writing to you, brothers and sisters, because I want you to understand that we discover here in these first couple verses the priority of Paul's life and the way he invests it in others. We look at this last a series as we, we studied how he invested in Aquila and Priscilla. But Paul writes acknowledging and reminding them the investment made in them on Christ's behalf, as well as the one that he has personally made. Paul here, I love this, Paul here includes Timothy, but he doesn't have to. Paul here includes Timothy as a co-signer, as a co-sender, but he doesn't need to. It wouldn't necessarily change 
the letter or its power. It wouldn't make much of a difference, but he's including the name Timothy that reveals Paul's heart. The way he has oriented his life, Paul realizes that life is better together, which is why he also calls the church at Colossae his brothers and his sisters. He realizes that he can accomplish so much more with than he can on his own. And there's actually no harm if he uses the platform around him and his ministry to lift up those he's in ministry with. He understands that it is a we thing. He writes reminding them of the investment and the continued investment that he has personally made in them, but the Lord made in all of them supremely. By referring to the recipients of this letter as saints in Christ and the faithful brothers and sisters, he is saying that they're called by God and saved by Christ just as he himself was. In Christ is an important theological concept, maybe one of the most important in the New Testament. It appears frequently in Paul's writings. It is quite central to his understanding of our very salvation. And uh, David E. Garland made some really important notes in his commentary on this thought. And it really ties together, quite honestly, what we've looked at in our first two points. And why it's so powerful what Paul's doing in his greeting. In highlighting his identity in Christ alone as an apostle. And the investment that he has made and is making and that Christ made for all of them. It says to be in Christ means to be incorporated in him. So that he encompasses the entire life of the believer. The recipients may be Colossians, but the only identity that matters to God is that they are Christian. That means that Christ determines everything in their lives. Paul will later make clear in this very letter about his death being their death. Christ's burial being their burial. His resurrection being their resurrection. And his victory being theirs. To be in Christ means that the Colossians are exclusively joined to him and no other. One cannot be in Christ and also in Isis. One cannot be in Christ and also be in Artemis or in any other god or goddess when they are in Christ. To be in Christ means that he determines the behavior of believers. One cannot be in the world or into magic or into drugs, for example, and also simultaneously be in Christ finding their identity. Elsewhere, Paul uses the basic idea to denounce immorality. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them to a prostitute? Never. To be in Christ means that believers are inseparably joined to him. Paul expresses his powerful uh, in Romans 8, 38 through 39. He says, Neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither in present nor in the future, nor in any powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. To be in Christ means that believers are joined together as an investment in a new family, where the dividing lines that separate and categorize persons have been erased. Their mutual faith in Christ has created a spiritual kinship that supersedes blood ties. Being in Christ gives Christians their true identity. Listen to this. Beyond their race, beyond their nationality, beyond their clan. Paul, therefore, calls these Colossians brothers. Jews would address fellow Jews as brothers all the time. But for a devout Jew like Paul to call a Gentile brother, many of whom, many of whom he had never met as he wrote his letters, reveals the radical consequences of a gospel that swept away all racial prejudices and the isolating of people from one another. Just like we see Paul 
writing this letter to invest into a church, some of which he's never met. And we see him do that as a co-signer because he's investing in Timothy, his understudy, who will be the pastor at Ephesus. I have a question. It begs a question. Who are you investing in? It's an old adage, garbage in, garbage out, right? What are you taking in? Who are you allowing to invest in you that those who are following you are the recipients thereof? Who are you investing in and who, in fact, is investing into you? Sometimes uh, I've heard it said that discipling others might be best um, when you recognize that you yourself are being discipled. How many of you are cognizant of the fact that people are saying something to you? And we are opening our ears to a message, whether it be God's or culture's. And that message is also being repeated in our lives to our children, to our friends, to our family, to those who are following us. Christ is our investment, but my question this morning is, to whom are you investing Him? Is your identity ironclad in Christ and Christ alone, like like Paul writes here, there's plenty of things that I could throw out here that identify my identity, but none of which are as important as my identity in Christ. And as brothers and sisters who are in Christ, everywhere we go, we carry with us the power and presence of God. And there's nothing more important than the investment we make. And that's our last point. The investment we make intentionally involves grace and peace. It says here, grace to you and peace from God our Father. What is grace? What is grace? If I asked you what grace is, how many of you, by a show of hands, would say grace is unmerited favor? That's a pretty good definition for it, right? It's a pretty good definition for it. But what he is writing here is so much more than that. It is that. It is unmerited favor, but it is so much more. And he does something very intentional here that I love about Paul. Paul does something to grab their attention. You see, in the Greek, we're going to learn some new languages today. In the Greek, the word for a typical and normal greeting in, this, in a book like this or a letter like this would be karen. Karen is greeting in Greek. Greetings. But he changes the word subtly to say grace because the Greek word for grace is charis. And so it's almost like as if someone were reading this letter in a house early on in the first century and all the listeners who had gathered, he said charis. People would be like, wait, 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 did he say charis? Like, that's not what I expected to hear. I didn't expect to hear charis. I didn't expect to hear grace. I, he's changed the customary greeting from karin to charis. So their ears perk up. And as he changes the word, he does so to communicate God's grace to the Colossians after all. It's the word that he's going to use to end off this letter in Acts in, uh, at the end of verse four, uh, sorry, chapter 4, verse 18. He'll say, grace be with you. What he's talking about here is that grace is so much more. It's so much bigger than simply unmerited favor. It carries with it a weight. It carries with it something that Tertullian, one of the early fathers of the church, said this. He defined grace as grace is the divine energy working in the soul. What it's talking about is what we looked at last week as Lynn taught. And he talked about Jesus sending out the twelve two by two. And they're able to go out and they're able to anoint the sick, raise the dead, 
and they're able to cast out demons and heal those who could not walk before the lame, and all of a sudden they can walk. He's talking about as many of our early church fathers believed that grace is not just unmerited favor, it is the empowering presence of God working in and through you and I to do what we cannot do naturally on our own. The divine energy working through the soul. Yes, it is unmerited favor, but Paul is saying, hey, without grace, I would not have an ability to be an apostle in Jesus. Without grace, I would not be able to preach the gospel in Christ. Without grace, I would not be able to plant a church. How many of you have ever been in conversation with someone and they, they give you their, their story? They give you whatever is ailing them. They're, tearing, they're telling you what it is is tearing them down. And, and I've been in this conversation for years, tens of years in ministry now, where someone comes to me and I don't know what to say to them. They tell me their story and I'm unprepared for it. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, oh my gosh, what am I going to say to this person? What do I say? I don't know what to say. Lord Jesus, give me the words. And how many of you have ever been in that conversation where you have no idea how much more detail you can handle? How much more uh, vile this story can get? How much more ill-equipped you can feel? You know what I'm talking about? For what is being shared with you and you go, God, please share. And then all of a sudden God gives you a download of a verse that like you haven't read in years. And you say that to them. And all of a sudden they go, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Ever had that happen? Hands raised? Hands raised? It's a very powerful experience. And it's one where you recognize where your, your natural abilities stop and God's empowering presence in our lives kicks in. It's the church being the church who is in Christ. And the investment we make is grace. And a second word is peace. Because when we receive grace and we walk in that empowering presence, peace goes forth from our life and grace is extended to others. Here the word peace is Irene. It's where we get the English name Irene. And Paul, understanding who Paul is with a deep background in Judaism, he would be sharing this with a lot of weight. You see, this is not what we would hear peace as. We might hear peace as like a life without wars. We might hear that as like when the war cease. Have you guys thought about this for a second? Have you noticed that anyone born after the year 1990 has never walked in a life without war? Do you understand this is the war we're raising our kids in? After the year 1990, we've never been without war. I think, I think the Bible spoke of that. There will be wars and what? Rumors of wars. And so we've ne- this is why this is so important. And his letter is so important to us as it was to Colossae. We have to recognize that Christ's work is sufficient because Irene or peace means a, a, a peace in the midst of the storm. We sang a moment ago that we have peace in our darkest hour. As Paul shares, he's a Hebrew. There's a Hebrew word for peace and it is shalom. It carries a weight. It's, it's often used in greeting. It's often used in goodbye. But shalom means this. May it be as it was in the Garden of Eden. May it go back to the way it was in your life, the way God intended from the beginning. So when you say shalom to someone, shalom. It's like, may, it be, may you be so at peace as it was before the brokenness of this world broke out. 
May it go back to the garden in you. May you be and carry with you such a weight because of the grace and the empowering presence of God and the unmerited favor that is on you and the ability to do what you cannot do on your own. May that leave you at a place of peace in the midst of the storms that are not going away till he returns. I thought that was a pretty good point. Christ is our intention and he leads to personal grace and peace. But grace and peace are cyclical. A personal understanding and acceptance of grace leads to one's sustaining peace through life's storms. And in turn, it leads to another's peace as grace is paid forward. I think of the words in Matthew 5 as we look at the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. You can't make peace when you don't have peace. Amen? Blessed are the peacemakers. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. Amen? I remember um, I was, <laughs> I was uh, engaged before I met Heather. I was engaged for only six weeks. But I was engaged to another woman. I genuinely thought the Lord was asking me to marry this woman. And, and, uh, and so I asked her to marry me. It was about five weeks into my engagement that I met with a, a mentor, someone I had allowed to speak into my life, who also knew her, knew her better than, knew her better than he even knew me. And he looked at me and he asked me the most compelling question that anyone has ever asked me. It struck me to the heart of who I was. We were talking about the engagement process. We were talking about what we're going to do. He was leading me, like, how do you navigate finances? How do you lead? And he looked at me and he said, hey, Justin, i got to ask you a question. Here it is. How's your peace? He didn't ask, are you happy? He didn't ask, how, how's, your, how's your joy? He said, how is your peace? And it struck me to the heart of who I was, and it led to me breaking off that engagement. Because here's the thing. When you... When you live in life with another brother, sister in close proximity, and you begin to see that they are not at peace, you can tell. He could see as I was talking, there was an anxiety present within me. And so when he said, hey, you're entering a world where you don't have enough money and, and you, don't, you, don't, you don't have enough money to get married. You don't have enough money to get kids. Hey, listen, how many of you recognize if you wait to have enough money to do the important stuff in life, you'll never get it done? Amen. That's why he was saying, he's like, you have absolutely no peace. It's gone. It's as if you did something in the way or under the impression of Jesus, but you were disobedient. You were wrong. This woman's not for you. Your peace went out the window the moment you engaged your life to her. And here's the thing. He could say that to me because I welcomed his voice in my life. How many people have welcomed someone to love you enough to be honest in your life? I don't like what you said. It doesn't matter if you like it. I love you enough to tell you. Had he not spoken up, I don't know where I might be today. You see, his identity was rooted in Christ and so is mine. And just like Paul lovingly corrects Colossae, he was lovingly correcting me. He knew we were brothers. And even though he was older and had been places that I had not yet been, he had the wisdom because of where God had carried him to say that into my life and make an investment in me. And so I want to say this morning that we're opening a series examining a formal greeting of Paul, which is often overlooked. Too often we breeze right past this stuff. But I want you to notice how intentional his words were in greeting to grab the listener's attention. 
He wanted to be certain that the reader of this letter, even us today, understand that Christ is remembered primarily and the main focus of his letter and the main focus of his life was Jesus. And as this morning we close this message, I want to ask you how intentional are you being about your interactions with others, elevating Christ to the point where he is memorable? How intentional are you about elevating the identity that you have in Christ and making the investment that you make into others grace and peace that it is being remembered by them? Do they know that he is in fact your identity? Do they recognize that the distinguishing contribution you and I make anywhere we walk into a room is Christ himself? This morning I want to do something different and I hope that I can. I hope that I can. The Lord's table gives us a weekly opportunity to come to the place where we re-enlist personally. I always, take, I always take the Lord's Supper as deeply personal and with thanks. But today I don't want to do it by myself. Here's the thing. How many of you, let's be honest, let's, just, let's be honest. How many of us have come to the place where we look at the Lord's Supper and we do this? Break, dip, moving on. How many of us have taken so cavalier, we go dip, dip, gone. No thought, our gauge, our, our minds, our hearts, not there. How many of us, he goes, every time they gathered, they gathered daily in homes, broke bread, and they gave in remembrance of him because their identity was firmly rooted and planted in the work of Jesus because it was sufficient. It wasn't the gospel plus something else. It was, this is who we are. We have nothing else. And wherever we go, this is the investment we make. And instead of doing this alone, they did it together. So today I want to challenge us today. We're going to open the Lord's table as our time of response today. And here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want you to go with someone else. And I want you to go with someone else who maybe, maybe you typically would not go with. And I want you to put your mind on what you're doing and what you're saying. That grace and peace are evident in even... Even this, these elements, it's an ordinance of the church that has survived since the first century, and it is important. There is power, listen, power in the words, this is his body broken for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you, and it is enough. It was finished. When Jesus said it's finished on the cross, it was finished. This morning... I'm going to challenge every one of us. I'm going to do this. And I want you to, there should be movement all over this room, but I want you to do it quickly. I want you to find one other person and I want you to go take the communion with them. I want you to go take the cracker, dip it in the blood and walk away so that the line can keep moving. As we respond, I want you to find a place in this room where you can sit with that other person. And I want you, one of you to look, the first one to look and say, this is his body, the body of Christ, which is broken for you. And it is enough. This is the other, reciprocate. This is his blood, which was shed to cover and redeem you from sin. And it is enough. You can trust it. I want you to do that with the backdrop and the thought of how many times it's not enough in your life. I want you to think about it like I have been convicted by my own children. How many of you, you're probably unlike me, probably not like me. How many of you go to an amusement park and you look at the ungodly prices and you go, you know what, you're uh, no longer 11, you're 9. Because I can get you in under 10 now. You ever do that? You know what I'm talking about? That's going to save me about 40 bucks, so like, you're 9. 
How many of you have also, out of the mouth of babes, had your life embarrassed because you walk up, you didn't notice that, and you go, hey, yeah, I've got a nine-year-old, and he goes, I'm 11, right in front of the lady, and she goes, hmm. And then you try to make some excuse, because here's the thing, it doesn't matter what excuse comes, and it doesn't matter how embarrassed you are, there's accountability and honesty, and quite honestly, right there, the reason, the reason you said you're nine is because Christ is not enough in your wallet. In that moment, you go, I don't truly trust you with my finances, so I'm going to get a deal here. Does Jesus know what's in your bank account? Did he, in fact, place it there? Are you faithful to trust him with it so that you don't have to be? Here's what I had to look at that lady and say. It's happened to me. I'm not playing. This is not hypothetical. I had to look at that lady. And I didn't know what to say. I wanted to come up with some excuse. I wanted to correct my son. Here's what I looked at her and said. I'm a liar. Sorry. Here, uh, here's the extra 40 bucks. I am a liar. And this is embarrassing. But the truth is, Christ is enough, but because I lied to you, I lost the opportunity to share that with you, live with you, because I'm not walking in the very grace and peace that is evident in my identity in Christ. Hello? Anybody else here? So this morning, I want to come and respond, and I want to be able to come to the Lord's table Re-enlist as one who finds his identity firmly planted in him and one who finds my brother's identity firmly planted in him and say, this is his body, this is blood broken for you. It is enough this morning. There's nothing more, nothing to be added. It's just him. So, Father, this morning as as the band comes back and they're going to pray over us as they play and sing, We, your people, have an opportunity to respond to the truth that we find our identity in you and we find our identity in the work that was completed for us to redeem us, to place us in you on the cross. And Jesus, we don't want to make you a liar because you said it is enough. This morning, Christ, we just want to join with you. We just want to agree with you. We just want to confess that we, your people, who bear your name and find our identity solely in you, thank you for the investment you made in us as we come to the table and want to extend that investment to others in honesty. So as we come to your table, all over this room, everyone involved, put on our heart the person we are to take this with and to remind them as they remind us, Christ, you are enough. It's in your name we ask it.